Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. Our guest today joins us from just north of the U.S. border from Toronto, Canada. His name is Dr. Adil Khan, and he is an expert in musculoskeletal medicine, pain medicine, and regenerative medicine. He specializes in interventional orthopedics, using orthobiologics with x-ray and ultrasound guidance to treat patients. He is one of the few sports physicians in Canada that holds membership with the Spine Intervention Society. He was the first doctor in Canada to perform intraosseous PRP. He has presented at the Orthobiologics Institute, the world's largest regenerative sports medicine conference. He has treated a wide range of patients from celebrities, top professional athletes, and Olympic gold medalists. He has a special interest in using interventional procedures to treat weightlifting injuries as well as chronic neck and back pain. Dr. Khan also teaches medical students and residents and is an assistant adjunct clinical professor at McMaster University and the University of Toronto. So in this episode, we delve into Dr. Khan's journey. You know, how did he really get into sports medicine? How did he find his love to use orthobiologics to treat procedures, like I mentioned, with neck pain, back pain, which so many of us uh, have in this world? We then delve into his love for weightlifting and fitness, and we get his principles as to why this may be a huge driver for great longevity. All right, without further ado, here's Dr. Khan. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Medicine Redefined. Uh, today, we got guest Dr. Adil Khan up from uh, Canada. Um, hey, man, it's been awesome to now kind of put you know our face on the screens and, and chat here. I know we've been connected through Instagram for a bit, so it's awesome to kind of do this and delve into your expertise with sports medicine, orthobiologics, uh, hormone replacement therapy, and uh, kind of talk about the differences between uh, the U.S. system and Canada. But first off, man, how are you? I'm tired, but I'm here. <laughs> but that's the life of a life of a doctor and uh, with a newborn. So yeah, man. Well, congratulations on the newborn, and yeah, absolutely, man. I think we both can relate uh, here with how tired it can be, uh, especially with everything you're doing, man. You're you're, you're pulling a lot of weight, like Altamash was just talking about uh, in the gym, and then you're definitely active and you're treating a lot of high profile people, man. So I'm sure the uh, stress is on. Um, but I'm glad to hear that you're doing well, and thanks again for uh, making the time to come on here. So. You know, I want to delve into the, your roots and kind of the beginnings. So you're obviously a sports medicine doctor, um, but there's a combination between medicine and fitness uh, in order to do that. So take us through your journey, right? Why did you choose medicine? When did you choose it? And then how did fitness kind of play a role throughout your life? Yeah, I think I think that's exactly what you said. I was actually a personal trainer before I went into mm -hmm. medicine. And then, so that's what really inspired me to want to help other people. And then the big thing for me was like, I was, I was really into the preventative model because I was like, okay, there's all these lifestyle diseases. And as a personal trainer, I can impact these people so much because I can actually, if they move, if they move better, sometimes they can, you know, even reverse or control their diabetes. They can prevent heart disease and a lot of lifestyle diseases. So I knew kind of from that setting that that's where I wanted to go some sort of like holistic type of medicine um why i got into personal training probably my cousin was a huge influence on that he was a personal trainer and just being around him and then just having that kind of 
I guess, mentors, seeing someone who's doing that. That's what got me into that whole world of fitness. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of like, I just fell in love with it. I started, you know, I kind of started like everyone. I just wanted to get bigger biceps and bigger chest <laughs> and whatever. And I just, <laughs> but, but that, when you're 19, you're just kind of like, I want to do it for fun and I want to do it to look good. But then it becomes, it becomes so much more as you become older. It's not just about looks. Like I, I could care less about the looks anymore. Yeah. It's just more about like, uh, obviously longevity and health. But the other thing is it's for me, it's a mental stress. And for me, it's almost a form of meditation now. Mm. It just becomes like a place where I can release like stress and just focus on myself and just do what I got to do. And, um, combining that now into medicine is where there's so much opportunity because for me as a natural bodybuilder i saw like you know all, all the musculoskeletal conditions these guys deal with and so i kind of use that as an opportunity to build my brand i guess into that market more than anything else and then um and then i guess i was the only one really only medical sports doctor who's like that so it just kind of took off from there because there wasn't many sports doctors who kind of lift the weight i do and train the way i do and so a lot of bodybuilders just resonated with that um and then i also got lucky because i got mentored by dr gallia who's the pioneer of PRP he was the first one in the world to do it um, back in 96. And he did it for like Tiger Woods and all sorts of people. And so because of him, he's like, he, he's like the OG OG. And so I got trained by him. And so I'm lucky because that I have all this expertise now. And, uh, and yeah, so now, and I feel like just, I'm in a u- unique position because of my combination of fitness and health background and combining that with medicine, I can bring a skill set that not many people have. Yeah, it gives you instant credibility, right? Because if you're speaking the same language uh, as as your patients, you know the the high profile, but a bodybuilder is people in the space of you know sport of fitness, whatever it might be. Um, if they walk into the clinic and, and they know, or rather, if they follow you on Instagram or social media and they see what, what you can do, they're like, okay, this guy gets it. He must get it, right? Um, and so I think that that automatically brings people inside the tribe, and they feel much more comfortable disclosing some of the information that you know we. We always talk about how history is the most important thing. And I think that I've heard you talk about this on in, in, uh, some of the other shows that you've been on is that, you know, getting that getting that history is so critical. But also, you know, when you're asking about, hey, what medications are you taking? What other substances might you be using? Um, if they feel like you speak the same language, um, they might be more open with that information. And that information could, the one key piece could change the trajectory of the treatment, right? Um Speaking the same language, though, were there, I mean, so now you're treating a lot of people in sports medicine, people with injuries, right? Um, did you have any injuries, you know, in the space of bodybuilding, in the space of like, you know, growing up, did you have a serious injury, some minor aches and pains there? No, I guess I've been blessed in that way. I have, I, I've been unblessed with us, you know, the Daisy genetics, but <laughs> that takes, <laughs> it takes a lot of hard work to overcome it. I'm sure you guys can appreciate that too. Uh, non, non Daisies don't understand because they, you know, they're, they're non daisy So they just don't yeah. get it putting on muscle. And there's actually been research on this. So there's actually a study done is very interesting. So they had a bunch of groups where they, uh, different, uh, ethnic groups and they put them into a calorie surplus and basically they weren't, they didn't have them doing resistance training. So they're basically just seeing how much fat they can put on and how much of it will actually go into muscle. And so, so, you know, the African-American put on the least fat and he somehow put on muscle, even though he was barely, he wasn't working out. And then the brown person put on the most fat and put on no muscle. So that's, so that, that's, that just shows you our genetics uh, susceptibility. Yeah, you're clearly an outlier. I need to find that study and just uh, wave it around uh, as, uh, as I walk around <laughs> and people accuse me of uh, getting older and, and, you know, all those things. Um, that is amazing. And, and for those who aren't familiar with the vernacular, uh, they see is the South Asian population really secluded to um, probably, well, three countries, I would say Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India, right? But anyways, coming back to to the Canadian system, right? So that's where you grew up. That's where you got most of your education. Um, you're 
your your path to medicine isn't the same, right? For us, it's undergrad, four years, four years in medicine. Then we got residency that's anywhere from three to eight years, depending on what you're doing, potentially a fellowship. It's a very long road, a preposterous amount of student loans. Um, Yours is a little bit different, right? For those who might not be familiar, can you lay out that, like, what's the education system like? Yeah, I kind of took a shortcut because you guys are, you guys have to do five years, right? Or four years of physiatry to get to where you're Physiatry is four years, right? Yeah. Plus a fellowship. So basically five years. Yeah. So I basically, I did family medicine as my primary training, but I kind of knew I didn't want to do family. And so I did what's, we have a, something called change of scope in Canada or Ontario, which basically means you can add additional skill sets to it if you do supervised training. And so one of those trainings is sports medicine and one of those is interventional pain. So I did those two. And so it allowed me to build those procedural skill sets um, under supervision. And then eventually I got my own uh, designation. And then the biggest thing was the regenerative medicine stuff, because working with uh, Tony Gallia, he, he was, he's, he's the only one really doing it properly. And we'll get to what properly means later. Uh, but in Canada, there's a lot of guys doing PRP, but most of them are just copycats of Tony because he was, you know, he, was, he started it all and you know, they just kind of copied him, but didn't really do it the right way. And so having his expertise in terms of regenerative medicine and then getting good mentors for um, interventional spine made a big difference. Because I, I had Dr. Um, his name's Michael Gofeld, but he's a, he's what you call a spinologist, I guess. That's what they call them in Europe. And basically, they're anesthesiologists who do two years of interventional pain training. So he did seven years of training to get to where he's at. And so I learned a lot from him in terms of interventional spine and the procedural and technical stuff. Um, and yeah, so that's because a lot of people always ask me, like, oh, you're so young. Like, how are you? <laughs> like, what, you know, how are you doing this type of thing, especially where I'm at in my career? Um, so I kind of got took a shortcut in that sense, I guess, because most people would have to do at least five years to be where I'm at, to just to start out, um, not to mention building your own brand and name and all that stuff. I'm really happy one of us brown people are getting the young comments. Let me tell you about uh, a patient interaction I had today. <laughs> you know, full disclosure, I'm 32 years old. I had uh, a patient who I was treating for myofascial pain constantly. And, um, you know, I told her, I was like, hey, listen, like, you know, we're the same age and these are kind of the expectations. She just looked at me. She goes, oh, you look so much older than I do. And I was like, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Um, but anyways, Hey, the, the change could be a compliment scope, though, because you're so wise, you're so wise and you know so much. Appreciate that. Appreciate the save there, man. <laughs> um, the change of scope, what is that time frame when you decide, Hey, you want to add another skill set? Like you have to do six months, a year of it's, supervised it's training. It's basically like two, it's two years of sports med and one year of interventional pain. Basically. Wow. So like okay. three years. So yeah, it's like a little red. So it ends up being similar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Similar, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Um, so it, you touched on regenerative medicine, right? That's the, the latest thing then. And the most of your practice is now regenerative medicine. Do you still do any family medicine or is it primarily? No, I'm, and I'm exclusively almost regenerative now. Like I don't even, I barely do cortisone and stuff. I only do it for like bursitis and that's it pretty much. But Okay. So let's start with this, right? We had Dr. Malenga come and talk and we talked about one of his favorite things to, to you, you know, Dr. Malenga well is, you know, words really matter. Right. And, and this, this term regenerative medicine is somewhat of a misnomer, right? And so maybe just in your, in your, mind and, and how you have this conversation with, with folks is, you know, what does that re- term regenerative medicine mean to you? Um, some of the, one of the terms that we use is orthobiologics. Is that what you guys are using up in Dr. Gallia's clinic as well and really throughout Canada as well? Or, or do you have a better term for it? Yeah, that's the per- term we prefer to is orthobiologics, just because th- that's basically a term for just saying the substances that promote healing, right? And so there's natural, there's, so there's lots, like there's hyaluronic acid as well, right? And that fall in that category. And so the reason I don't like regenerative medicine and I don't like stem cells either is because there's too many doctors who just use those words to lure people 
And um, I do use the word, I mean, I guess I use the word myself too, but like, I don't like it when, uh, the problem is a lot of people have to kind of use it for marketing to kind of give this false promise that we can regrow new tissue. When in reality, you can't really regrow new tissue unless you're using what's called induced pluripotent stem cells, IPS cells, and you're using 3D bioprinter scaffolds and you're actually seeding those into those scaffolds. So that's the way to do it. But that, that's, that's still in clinical trials in the States and Canada's no one even doing that yet. So, um, so true regenerative medicine's around the corner, but what we're doing right now is more, like you said, orthobiologics. It's more cellular signaling and changing the environment to promote healing. So you talk about cellular signaling, right, through various different mechanisms, PRP being one of them. What common ailments are you treating, right, for the people that are trying to understand regenerative orthobiologics and what that all means? What's the typical patient population you work with? Who's coming in? And what exactly are you doing? Well, we have such a wide range because I've treated a 96-year-old Korean man who just wanted to be able to walk. And I've treated Olympic gold medalists and world champion powerlifters and world champion, you know, so, and I've, I've treated a 14 year old elite gymnast who was in the Olympics. Like, so I have a huge range. And, um, I think, I think the biggest thing though, by far is definitely osteoarthritis. Like I think that's hands down. Um, and the, and the reason for that and even chronic tendinosis we know now is, is it's an inflammatory condition. And so what we're targeting in terms of cellular pathways is inflammation. So the big, the big problem with regular PRP is it's not actually that anti-inflammatory. It's somewhat anti-inflammatory, but it's more growth factors, right? It's, it has lots of TGF-beta, IGF-1, and other growth factors that promote healing. Uh, but it doesn't have much of um, inhibitors, especially it doesn't have much in terms of what are called TIMPs, tissue inhibitor uh, metalloproteinases, and they target what are called MMPs. And MMPs are pro-inflammatory cytokines that break down cartilage. And the other one that's pretty big, well-known is IL-1. IL-1 is also another pro-inflammatory cytokine that can lead to degradation of cartilage, and it's been linked to chronic tendinosis as well. And so that's, those were the inflammatory pathways that we're trying to target, and lots of research has been done on that in the last decade. And so there's a guy named Peter Whaling in Germany who came out with something called orthokine or regenokine. Um, Joe Rogan actually went to go get that done um, because, I don't, well, he probably didn't know about it. I don't think he knows Tony, that's why. But if he knew about Tony, he would have come to us. But anyway, he, uh, he went there because... Uh, he got orthokine done, and or they, they've, they've just done a better job marketing than we have. We've only we only came out two years ago, but um, basically, what orthokine? The reason why it's so popular amongst like the top people around the world, all, all the elite people, like Michael Jordan went there, Kobe Bryant went there. Um, we, I mean, we the reason they go there is because it's targeting IL one. It's IRAP, as it's known in the, the colloquial term, I guess. Uh, but basically, by targeting IL one, you're targeting one of the main inflammatory mediators of chronic tendinosis, chronic pain, and osteoarthritis. So it's a big game changer from regular PRP. But then Cytorich takes it a step further in that it also has high levels of TIMPs. So Cytorich is our second generation plasma injection. And so that's a big difference between Cytorich and orthokine or regenokine. And so that's, and it's all about chronic inflammation. And that's really the root cause of so many different diseases, um, not just chronic um, musculoskeletal conditions, but obviously like, you know, even heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, dementia, they've all been linked to chronic inflammation in some sense. So, you know, I've heard you talk about this, this uh, concept of cider rich actually first saw Dr. John Berardi posted, and I think he, he got treated by one of your colleagues. Um, I forget who was whoever the other brown person is in, in your clinic, I think. Um, but oh, uh, he, Rizwan probably. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That name's everything rings a bell. Um, and so, and I was like, oh, the cider rich is interesting because I think the terminology we use in the States is a bit different, right? And so 
we typically will refer to them with leukocytes or, or, or neutrophils and that kind of stuff like that. So what would be the analogous uh, terminology for at least what folks are using? I know you're, you're familiar with, um, you know, the Regenex folks, uh, the Toby folks you said you presented there. Um, how would Cider Rich compare to that? Well, it's so the way to break it up is uh, acellular. So it's actually an acellular plasma injection. So there's no cells in there. So it's more mm-hmm. like a platelet lysate. So I think that's the way to kind of look at okay. it. Because um, platelet lysate is a thing, and Logenix has obviously promoted that in their, um, what, with what they do. Um, and the, as you guys know, the lysis is basically when they actually release all the anti-inflammatory cytokines. And there's different ways to do that. So you can freeze it, you can mechanically lyse it, you can incubate it. Um, so what we do is we actually incubate ours. Um, so that's, that's what we have, and we have patents on that for how we do it and stuff. Um, and I think the Regenix guys, they were freezing it, I believe before, but I'm not sure if they're still doing that. And then we also mechanically lyse it. We use a special filter to light the platelets. And so what, what that does is it basically just releases all the anti-inflammatory cytokines, all the goodies, so to speak, inside of the platelets and immediately releases them into the area that you're injecting into. You know, so I've kind of been removed from this space a little bit. We're talking about newborns, um, that that'll be, I have one myself and, uh, that's uh, the fastest way to stay away from keeping up with the literature, right? Um, but, yeah, you know, my, at least, I was reading a recent paper, the American Medical Society Sports Medicine, right? That's our parent academy. They came out with a position statement not too long ago talking about just the, the regulations and, and what the evidence, the state of the evidence is for different types of pathologies, right? You talked about osteoarthritis, which is probably the most prevalent thing worldwide, neosteoarthritis to be specific. Um, but focusing on tendinopathies for a second, Right. The evidence, at least from my understanding, for lateral epicondylopathy is probably the strongest, right? But specifically, what we say is leukocyte rich, right? But from what you're, at least from what I'm hearing, is saying we're we're trying to take all that all that out. We know that leukocytes are going to be inflammatory, but here we're we're taking all the cells out. Like, how do you kind of look at that? Or I have actually haven't looked at a lot of the literature focusing particularly on the lysates or or cider rich as you're referring to. Yeah, and that's and, and I think you have to look at it from a mechanistic perspective. And if does this make sense? You don't want to. Why would you be injecting cells or something that's pro-inflammatory into where you want to reduce inflammation, especially in osteoarthritis in a joint? And we know in joints, when you actually inject like the red plasma, which is a leukocyte rich, it, it can actually the cells there can actually cause inflammation over time and actually lead to more wear and tear. So I'm not a big so I'm not a big fan of that from um, from that perspective. I think the problem is like. It's probably Tony's fault too. He's been kind of reclusive for the last like decade or so. And he's uh, ever since he got, I'm sure, I don't know if you guys heard, but like it was back in 2010 when he treated Tiger Woods, Alex Rodriguez, and a few other top U.S. athletes, but he didn't have his U.S. medical license at the time. So then it was in the media all mm. over the world and he got, he eventually got suspended and he kind of just disappeared for 10 years from the like spotlight. And now he's kind of back with Cedar Rich and I'm kind of his protege, I guess, so to speak. <laughs> and I'm his spokesman. Um, but he, he, uh, he like his, you know, he understands PRP better than anyone, anywhere, anyone else in the world, for sure, because he's been researching it for 30 years. Um, and the problem is these guys, a lot of these guys just don't, um, like, I, I don't, I'm not really sure why they're promoting leukocyte bridge for something that even mechanistically, if you look at the basic science literature, is actually an pr- inflammatory condition, right? It makes sense to inject leukocyte rich into a potentially, uh, we use it for chronic muscle tears because you actually want to promote inflammation in there, right? And you want it to heal and you want cells in there. Uh, but for for inflammatory conditions, you you actually you want something that's acellular and just going to be purely uh, anti-inflammatory. If it's just if it's purely just chronic tendinosis, but a lot of times it's not, right? A lot of times there's actually chronic tearing and there's tendinosis. Mm-hmm. 
right? And so what we do is we use a regular PRP or leukocyte rich, if you want to call it, or, um, or we use, or sometimes uh, we'll actually use leukocyte poor PRP with cells to go into the tear directly. And then we'll use our either then we'll use our cytorich to bathe around the tendon to reduce inflammation. So that way you're reducing inflammation around the tendon sheath, but then you're all, you're promoting um, healing of those tears inside of the tendon. So we can actually target specific PRPs for a problem that way. And I, I do that yeah. for spine as well. So for spine, like you don't want to put any cells in the spinal canal for like spinal cord, uh, not spinal cord into the epidural space, and so. That's why platelet lysate is well is well studied for that and used, and also <clears throat> regenokine has also been studied for that. Um, but we use cytorich as well for spine because we use it around the nerves to decrease the inflammation, and then we use it for facet arthritis to decrease the inflammation around there. But then we use the other the uh, other regular P, kind of the standard PRP or PRGF into the muscle tears and into the ligaments to uh, heal those areas. So no. that way you can make a more much more specific targeted approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that, right? I mean, I've heard you talk about this. I mean, in the concept of precision medicine, right, which is kind of what a lot of medicine is getting into, right, more, more and more. So, um, you bring up a lot of interesting points there, right? I think I've had some of these conversations with folks who, at least in the states, are kind of at the forefront, right? You've talked about some of those people um, out on the West Coast, up in Colorado, right? Um, and 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 they talk about for those reasons that you just mentioned that why they do choose to use leukocyte poor, right? I think that from the side of which, from what you described is maybe taking it one step further. And you had also mentioned using leukocyte poor. But at the same time, you know, the folks who are non-believers, I put that in quotes, uh, you know, they'll say, well, okay, well, what is the evidence point, right? And if the evidence in the randomized controlled trials, which is kind of, again, quote unquote, gold standard, it drives what's going to cover, right? And payers are going to pay for it. Um, and they're going to say, well, most of the evidence says that leukocyte rich is better, right? Mechanistically, the, the beautiful explanation that you gave, it's like, okay, we should be using, we should not be involving leukocytes or neutrophils and all that kind of good stuff. Um, how, I mean, how do you have that conversation when people throw this, well, the literature supports leukocyte rich is better. Like, what, what do you say to that? I'm asking selfishly because I don't have an answer. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, I mean, um, there are some patients who are, who do their research and definitely do say those type of things, but then I essentially just give them the same talk I gave you. And then they're just like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> and they don't really question it after that. And then there's just, it's, it's more of a, I think it's a bias of the literature too, and perhaps the lack of standardization, right? A lot of people I think who, um, maybe are doing those studies don't have as, aren't well as a first in PRP. And so they're just kind of doing the studies for the, for doing it for like, just, I feel like some of them just doing it to almost disprove that PRP doesn't work you know what i mean um and then because if they if some of these studies are really poorly designed like i've seen a lot of them where i'm just like why would you ever use that type of prp for this type of thing you know what i mean and yeah. so it's just it almost doesn't make sense it's almost like these guys don't know anything about prp but someone just told them to like just go study it and like they're just getting funding and then just doing it and so from your data perspective so so what we're doing is we're using um salesforce or crm and building a database of like our own data and then i know i know regenix does the same thing and i know um Steve Sampson, who's with uh, Ortho Healing, and Toby, he does the same thing. So we all have our databases with lots of data. Uh, definitely, we all need to definitely publish more stuff. Like, I think that's a big gap for sure, because right now it is a lot of um, guruism, I guess, so to speak, saying this person's the best, this person's the best. Um, and we need more objective data for sure. And I think, um, I know we're working on, we have a 5,000 patient trial going on in the U.S. with Center Rich right now. So that'll be helpful, obviously, for NeoA, and that's a big sample size. Um but we definitely need more data for like a lot of the tendinopathies and spine and stuff like that. Uh, you know, at the same time, 
I think a lot of these interventions are also, at least my practice, for the most part, are patients who've tried everything. Um, like they've tried cortisone, they've tried physio, they've tried all of conservative management, and um, they don't necessarily want surgery. Some of them even try surgery or it didn't work or they're in pain again after. And so you don't have many options left either. And I think the big thing in medicine is we have to look at number needed to treat versus number needed to harm, right? Which is essentially fancy way of saying benefits versus risk. And so the reality is PRP has very low risk, especially acellular PRP, um, because leukocyte rich actually hurts like hell. I don't know mm, if you've ever yeah. had it injected, but it, it, it hurts a lot and it's very uncomfortable for the patient. So I don't, if I can cause least harm in that perspective too, then I would, you know, I'd rather do that. Um, especially if the results are just as good, if not better. Um, and then the other thing is for these patients where even if they're considering surgery, orthopedic surgery actually has pretty poor evidence for most things. Um, there's a big meta analysis that came out like last year about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, BGSM, you know, there's, yeah. There's, yeah, exactly. So there's only a handful of things that it's actually has decent evidence for. So would you rather have your knee cut into for a meniscus or maybe try PRP, which is way less harmful, but maybe it doesn't have many studies. It has a few couple studies on it, uh, but it has way less risk of, um, you know, downtime complications, all that other stuff. So I think that's, that's the way I usually explain to patients and almost everyone would rather try the PRP than surgery. Yeah, no, I, and I do want to point out that the, the, I think the study that you're talking about is they, it looked at, I think, the 10 of the most common elective procedures. I don't want somebody to listen to this and be like, well, listen, I, I, I had an acute, you know, femoral neck fracture. Yeah, yeah, no, not fractures. Or so, yeah, no, no. Um, of course, medicine, doctors are the best at acute, like, there's no one better than orthopedic surgeons when it comes to fractures. That's good, hands down, right? right? We're just, we're yeah. talking about, whenever we're talking about gaps in the medical system, we're talking about chronic issues, right? And exactly. uh, that's... Yeah, no, so this, it opens up this can of worm and I kind of do want to go down because I think, you know, one of the issues is, again, I was lucky that I exposed to the world of orthobiologics in medical school, right? And, and Dr. Malenko was one of the folks who um, who exposed me to that because I, I had some time to, to spend with him. And then from there, I went to Interventional Orthopedics Foundation conferences every year. Toby as well attend that to really get to learn from the best of the best, Right. And, and these conversations keep coming up, but then the challenge becomes when we go back to the regular world where people aren't dabbling it, I shouldn't say more than dabbling, there aren't, this isn't part of their routine practice. They're not diving deep into the literature like you are. They're not understanding the mechanisms. Um, and then they'll be quick to dismiss that, hey, listen, that doesn't work, or we don't have evidence, or people are charging whatever amount of money that you want. I mean, we know that you can charge, um, there's a really good paper, I think it was the, um, uh, it was 2016. I remember reading an abstract in the American Orthopedics, one of their journals, that uh, there is just a wide variety of um, costs that people can charge for PRP, anywhere from $400 to like $3,000. And it doesn't even make sense, right? And you've talked to this before, is that you guys actually look and you're actually getting the cell count and how important that is. So coming back to your point about methodologies is and Dr. Malenga brought this up last time is, you know, you'll look at some of these studies and people haven't even commented on, you know, what percentage or what the cell count is and if it's even appropriate. So if it didn't work, how could you say if it didn't work if you didn't even take the right exactly. medication, right? They're not yeah. trying. That's why I'm saying half, half of the PRP literature is garbage because they're not trying. <laughs> I'm just like, this doesn't mean anything to me because I know, but how can a regular doctor discern that? They don't, if they're not an expert in PRP, how are they going to possibly know that the study is BS? And then, especially, and then a patient has zero away. So, like, I saw a physio today post about something about, like, oh, PRP doesn't work or something. So, I just called him out on his BS bit. Because <laughs> he's, he's quoting some study that's just nonsense, nonsensical. Like, they're using the wrong type of PRP. Some of the studies, they don't even do them with image guidance. So, it's just like, like what are you yeah. doing? Like it's, Which... It's, 
the the lack of image guidance is a, is a really wild concept to, to me. I know you guys use ultrasound guidance, and you do you use fluoroscopy for your spine stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and intraosseous too. I use uh, fluoroscopy. Yeah. Okay. Talk a little bit more about this intraosseous concept. I know it sounds like you're becoming more and more passionate about this. What is exactly for those who don't know, and when is it um, indicated? Yeah, it's essentially for severe osteoarthritis, moderate to severe, because we know the evidence for regular PRP is only mild to moderate. So after that, you're kind of stuck, limited with your options. Like, yeah, you can do stem cell injections. Uh, I put those in quotations because they're not really stem cell injections, right? They're just uh, essentially anti-inflammatory signals that reduce inflammation. <laughs> and so and so, uh, if you if you have someone who doesn't want to get a knee replacement or hip replacement, or they're too young, or they're maybe they're not, there's contraindications, or they can't do it for whatever reason, then their options are so limited, right? And so, um, so that's why I'm so excited about intraosseous. Like, it's just an opportunity to help so many people who are suffering in pain and don't have an uh, option. Uh, so the idea is that with osteoarthritis, as you guys know, it's not just a disease of the cartilage, but it's a disease of the subchondral bone, which is a kind of the bone underneath the cartilage. And so we, th- we we think of joints now more as like organ systems. We used to think of them as just like kind of inert, you know, they just move us around type of thing. But the, now we know that there, there's actually so many cellular signaling pathways that go around in those organ systems um, and they communicate. And so what we do is we can target the subchondral bone with the PRP. So we can actually inject it directly into the bone. And that's where a lot of people have bone edema or inflammation. And that's the main pain generator. So there's actually been studies on this saying that people who have narrowing, pain doesn't correlate with that. So you could have severe narrowing on X plane x-rays, but you might not have much pain. But bone edema on MRI correlates much higher with pain. So it is a big pain generator for a lot of people. And it's something we can target specifically with the PRP. So if I see someone who has an MRI and the shows specifically they have bone edema that correlates with their pain, then I'm confident that I can treat it with the intraosseous injection. And I've done it for many people. Um, I'm publishing a bunch of case reports right now because I'm the only one in Canada doing it. Uh, and I've done it. And I, I'm pretty sure I was the first one in the world to do it for a few different, like I, I don't think anyone's published anything on foot. Like I did one guy, he was like a 35-year-old carpenter. Uh, he couldn't work because he was just chronic, like nine, 10 out of 10 pain because he had a previous fracture in that, like in his fifth MTP when he was younger. And so it was like post-traumatic OA. And then the surgeon was like, well, we could fuse it. And that's the only option. And then like, he's just like, I'm, I don't want to fuse it. Like he's so young. And so, so we did the boat, we did the injection and then he had like one out of 10 pain after two weeks and after six weeks, like zero to out of 10. And now he's, he's been fine since. And so like, there's just like incredible cases like that, that I can just you know, that literally had no other option. And if I wasn't doing this in Canada, like no one could help him. And like, so it's just cool to be able to help people like that. So that's why I'm passionate about it, I guess. It's just cool to give that um, skill set and help people who otherwise would have no one to really help them. No, I love that. I mean, I think that is really important. And for those who don't know, MTP is metatarsophalangeal joint. It's your little, I guess so the fifth, right? So pinky toe joint. Um, yeah. I want to come back to MSCs and, and perinatal dry products in a little bit, but I think that this might be a good segue to talk about just some of the the legalities and regulations, right? We, we Maybe we did or didn't touch on. Um, they're very loosely regulated. I think the FDA is really cracking down on it, at least in the States. Um, I'm not really sure what the scope is in Canada. Um, you are much more familiar with this. Could you highlight what the differences are in terms of regulations, both in the States and, and Canada, for those who might not be familiar? Yeah, so... Health Canada basically put a pause on all stem cell injections uh, two years ago or almost three years ago now. And the reason for that was because there's so many clinics doing it, just like you guys are doing in the States. It's a wild, wild west, right? There's people doing it. I heard in the States, there's even chiros and naturopaths doing it. So like, you know, there's just people, there's just no regulation. And so um, 
and, and even if there is regulation, maybe they're just not enforcing it enough. But the, the rule, so in Canada, they basically say no more stem cell injections, period. So that means you can't take your bone marrow or your fat and inject into someone for any musculoskeletal condition. The only, bo- the only stem cells that are allowed here are bone marrow transplants, uh, which are actually like, you know, which are very evidence-based and there's lots of good research for that. Um, so that's the only thing that, and there's, there's I, I think it's fair because it ruined it for people like me who are doing it properly. But but there's so many bad people out there who are bad players who are just taking advantage of patients and selling them something that's not true. Um, and the biggest thing I think people need to understand is that stem cells, when you take it from your body and you reinject them, they are not regrowing new tissue. They're simply reducing inflammation. And the guy who coined the term mesenchymal stem cells, Dr. Arnold Kaplan from Case Western, said in a paper published in Nature about four years ago or five years now it, that they should be renamed medicinal signaling cells. Right, so MSCs, because they're sending signals. It's all about paracrine secretion, which just means sending signals to a local tissue that have stem cells in them, and those stem cells are what's causing the regeneration ultimately. So when we have a tear in your shoulder, and I inject it with PRP, the PRP only stays there for maybe a couple hours. No, sorry, not a couple hours, like maybe a couple days. But what it does is it sends signals to your body's own immune system and own stem cells to start regenerating, and so that's how it heals. And that, and and stem cell injections that you get do the same thing. They're not, it's not the stem cells themselves that are causing engraftment or regrowing tissue. It's just sending cellular signals that promote that healing. So to get true regraftment or regeneration, it's like we, we need that regenerative medicine triad that we talk about, which are progenitor cells, growth factors, and a scaffold. So you need all three of those to actually get true regenerative medicine. We're getting there, so we're almost there. I, we're definitely going to be there in this decade. Like, I don't know if you guys know what organoids are, but organoids are like uh, Petri dish organs that they use to study uh, in, uh, pluripotent stem cells so basically they make they can make livers they can make they're even doing for parkinson's now they're studying brain and uh, basically they can make these different organoids and then they can put whatever pathology you want in there so you can make a liver disease you can make like you know liver cirrhosis you can make dementia and then you can study in a petri dish and use stem cells to regenerate the damaged tissue so that's how they're studying them and so once you so now so once you get and but now they're starting to do clinical trials so they're, doing, they're doing the first clinical trial in canada for parkinson's disease using stem cells so it's it's in it's underway, but it's it's still a few years away. Yeah, dude. Um, I mean that that's just an awesome explanation, and I really appreciate that. I think, you know, I keep coming back to th- this concept of okay. So the, I, I guess I'll push you on this is because I want to get your perspective of what the future holds, right? I mean, you you you're you have your pulse on this more so than either one of us, and I think that one of the issues becomes. Um, as you alluded to, that the average doctor, quote unquote, doesn't have the time to really sift through the literature like you have, maybe like even I have or Darsh has, and and so what they have, what they're resorted to is just looking at the guidelines, right? And then the guidelines are based off, you know, randomized control trials and stuff like that. Would say this works, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this works, right? And so if you're quickly going to look at it, you're like, well, no, nope, doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. Okay, maybe it works for yeah. tennis elbow and leukocyte rich is the only one. Anybody who's not doing that, X, Y, and Z reason. At least that's how the way it works here, right? Again, I'm, I'm very excited that we're still able to do, you know, bone marrow and um, and, and adipose because I think it. I really can't appreciate the the bad actors who've ruined it, or like you know one one or few bad apples who ruined it for the batch. But at the same time, you know the the progress in science has to has to happen, right? And so, um, what what is your um, if there's any optimism in, in terms of Canada and maybe some of the other countries who aren't making that progress or who've just said, okay, we're going to completely shut it off? How, how do you go get over that hump? How do you get back get get back to using MSCs? in Canada or in that kind of stuff? Well, there was actually a, a big um, stem cell 
I guess, symposium that was in the Globe and Mail, which is like one of our big news media outlets. And they were talking about with a bunch of health regulators and stem cell uh, biologists who do basic research. And they essentially said that they should remove the moratorium on stem cells within the next couple of years. So it is mm-hmm. going to go back the other way. They just want some more research before Health Canada allows it again. So we're in the process. So I think I think in the next five years, we'll be back, we'll be allowed to do so much more. And it's going to be really exciting to actually be in regenerative medicine in Canada and even the U.S. because there's just going to be there's so much research going on right now in this field. Um, so I think I think the pendulum is going to swing the other way. It's just it kind of swung too much one way. You know what I mean? And then yeah. now it's now they're just they're just going to have to go back and they're, they're doing the research they're making sure they have enough data. I think I think when it comes to cellular medicine, like whenever you're using something that's cell based, you definitely want to make sure you have enough safety data because it's not like PRP where it's just harmless. Right. It's, worst case, it doesn't work. But cellular stuff can there's been people going blind in, in the in the eye. There's been people growing tumors in the spine. Uh, so these are, these are real things that have happened to people and there are case reports about them. So whatever, you know, you got to be careful when injecting stem cells or cellular cell-based therapies into people. Um, so that's why I personally, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable doing them until there's more research from for a lot of different conditions. Um, I think one application that I would be excited about and the reason why you know, we we're talking about the Dubai thing earlier. I'm going to Dubai to treat some folks. And the reason why I would like to establish a regenerative medicine center somewhere else outside of Canada, and we're looking at other options, is because if, if you can actually grow stem cells, what are called pluripotent stem cells, and actually culture them and get the viable number of progenitor cells, culture them for a couple of weeks, and then inject them into a disc, for example, degenerative disc disease, you could actually regrow the disc and have like a significant height regain, you know, because there's been, there's been basic science data on that. Um, and I know, I know, like someone like uh, Santino, he's published some data on that too, from Regenics. And so, um, so I think that's exciting to actually regrow new tissue from that perspective. But uh, until there's more research, like it's it's hard to you know really stand behind it from that perspective. So, because I, I know there's so many people doing it in the states, and it's uh, it, it's it's just kind of buyer beware right now because you got to just look out for those people who are just kind of selling you. Um, it's almost like snake oil salesman. It's kind of a shame because we're doctors, right? We're not supposed to be like just in it for, to make money. Hopefully, hopefully most people are doing it just because they want to help people, right? And you want to give always best available evidence. And I think what you were saying earlier about the guidelines, the best available evidence to me is, is not a, a knee replacement for someone who has advanced arthritis. There's been studies, you're looking at intraosseous PRP in Europe and in Spain. They've been studying it for over a decade. So if you look at the data and you look at the data for knee replacement surgeries, to me, there's better data to support the intraosseous as a next step for knee replacement. Um, and it's also because of that paradigm we talked about is that how much harm versus benefit are you going to have, right? The benefit is potentially the same, if not, you know, without the potential harms and risks that you have with surgery. Uh, so yes, you can be a, you can be a robot and just look at guidelines. But then, you know, I'd rather just get a robot to replace you as a doctor because, you, you know, but that's what AI is going to do to replace those type of doctors. If you're just going to go by guidelines and not think critically and evaluate the evidence, then, you know, yeah, that's that you're not really doing your job. Yeah. Now, and we've talked about that at length before, how, how challenged that makes it to practice medicine um, and at least enjoyable medicine. right? I mean, if you're just going to follow guidelines or algorithms, rather, um, it, it doesn't exactly, make it yeah. as much fun, right? Playing detective. Um, follow up, though. Uh, so my understanding, at least for PRP, right? For so let's just take um, you know kale grade four osteoarthritis. Um, that's kind of the bone on bone end stage arthritis. I think we know, at least from what I know, that PRP maybe not you know a great indication for those folks. But you're saying IO is better. That's where that comes in. 
Yeah, I wouldn't even offer regular PRP or even Cytorich for those. I don't even offer that. Cytorich can work for moderate to severe, but if they have end stage like that, like the only way I'm going to treat them is if they have bone edema and MRI. But if they have no bone edema, then there's no target. So if there's no target, then they have no choice but to get a knee replacement. Um, at least, you know, what, what they're doing at um, Washington University, um, there's, uh, they're doing uh, 3D bioprinting. So they can actually resurface a knee or resurface a hip using yeah. 3D bioprinters. So they print uh, a scaffold using uh, polymer hydrogels, and then they seed it with mesen- then they then they grow the stem cells in the lab, and then they seed it with it, and then they actually, it can actually regrow cartilage and regrow new joints. So I think that that's the future of um, like organ transplantation uh, for at least a knee and hip and stuff. Like I don't think I think in ten years it'll be very. Uh, I think it'll, I think in ten years most people won't be getting joint replacements. They'll probably be getting um, stem cell transplantations and uh, joint the, yeah. those type of things. Interesting. So for your interosseous in- injections, are you doing them under x-ray or are you doing them under ultrasound? Yeah, I use both. I use, um, for most of them, I do them under fluoro, but sometimes I'll use ultrasound just to uh, mark it first. But then the actual active live injection I'll do under uh, fluoro. Because then fluoro, you can see exactly how deep you're going and everything. Right. Awesome. So uh, we talked a little about snake oil salesman. No, this, I don't know if it's a good transition or not. Let's talk a little bit about perinatal drive products, right? Um yeah. way uh and these are the products that people are saying amniotic tissue drive products and stuff and, and they were quite popular uh for a long time right um walk us through the history of that what was so special about them over prp because prp as you mentioned has been around for a long long time right a few decades now um why were amniotic tissue products so popular and now they're officially completely banned so people can't acquire yeah. them but i still Good get reason. patients coming yeah, yeah I'm, I'm getting patients for follow-ups like now and they're like oh last year you know my my sister's friend had it done and this is and that's what i want and i'm like oh listen i, I can't get that for you i'm sorry and i wouldn't yeah. wouldn't want to uh but tell us a little bit about that i think it's just a lure of anything that's uh embryonic it has this magical power that's why we store our umbil- umbilical cord stem cells too right that's why people they ask that at the hospital here when you know your baby's born now so it's, it's just and yeah they are powerful agents potentially but we again there isn't enough research on it and we know um, that amniotic, uh, you know, stem cells, there are barely any stem cells in there. The, the, what they were setting to you in a bile where it's like, basically it was just, it, it, there's been studies like, uh, looking at the fraction of it, it was mainly just protein and it had a little bit of like progenitive cells, but it's it just, you know, it, it's just a bile of like some anti-inflammatory, like, con, you know, nonsense basically in my, in my opinion, like it's not anything that's, um, really evidence-based and, and, and then there's also risks with it too. I think there's been infections and other things that have happened with that stuff. So, um, so you gotta be careful with that off the shelf type of product. I think, I think autologous is a way to go in general in regenerative medicine. And, um, like that means taking it from people's own bodies and that's, that's, and autologous, even in older people, it's going to be a possible, it's a possibility because of induced pluripotent stem cells. Like that's, that's kind of the way to do it. Yeah, and, and I alluded to the you know FDA cracking down hard. I think the the two requirements that they've made it is is I think the the word is they use homologous, but I, I think maybe they're referring to autologous is what they're trying to get. And the second part is minimally manipulated, right? I think once you and the minimally manipulated like that defining what that means, that's the difficult part of it, right? So we talked about adipose MSCs a little bit, right? There's one device where you kind of just you aspirate from the stomach or or, or you know um, posterior thigh and that kind of stuff, and then you'll shake it through this device and you're breaking that up and you're trying to harvest the, this stromovascular. Is that stromovascular or am I, am I confusing that with the, yeah, okay. SVF, stromovascular fraction. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so you'll get, and then you'll inject that back into in the scaffold that you're talking about, whether you're filling a defect like a meniscus or a rotator cuff or whatever it might be. Uh, but again, coming back to what does minimal manipulation mean? And, and that's where the FD can't go monitor every single physician um, that is, are doing these procedures and say, hey, are you doing it right? Are you not doing it right? And putting a microscope. Um, that being said, though, uh, you know, if you're, I mean, one thing I'll caution is what they have come down very hard is that nobody should be doing these um, for the reasons that you alluded to. One, a big one, like there aren't any viable cells in there anymore. Who knows how long they've been on there for? There are other things, as you mentioned, uh, but also the the rule number one coming back to do no harm, right? Uh, and we know that this actually has done quite a bit of harm. Um, and that was all up uh, in the news a couple of years ago. Uh, but for those folks, um, this is an important question, right? So so for those folks, uh, maybe patients that are listening to it are interested in that kind of stuff, it is really challenging. They're not going to go and go to PubMed and, and read all the studies and try to sift through it. I mean, like we mentioned, e even for clinicians um, and people who are trained in the sciences, um, it's hard. It's hard to figure out what's right, what's not right. Um, for just the average person who's trying to figure out where to go, who to go, what are some basic check boxes that, uh, that need to meet for you to recommend a, a practitioner doing this? I have pretty high standards. <laughs> so I, there's only uh, maybe there's only one one clinic in Canada that meets my standards, which is obviously us. And then in, in US, there's maybe three or four. Um, so there's the basics, which is obviously using image guidance injections. And there's actually a lot of people in Canada doing it without image guidance. And I've had many patients go to other clinics and they, I was like, oh, did they use image guidance? They're like, no, they just kind of felt and injected here. And I was like, oh my God. So I'm like, you didn't even have PRP. I don't know what you had. Like, yeah, they injected something, but I don't know where it went. So, so then that's, that's definitely number one, most important. Um, the other number two would probably be standardization or measuring your cell count or having a scientist or someone to actually have a cell counter to actually see what you're injecting. If they're just using generic um, centrifuges, I mean, that's, that's fine up to a point, but you're not going to get the specialized service that you're going to get um, at clinics that actually do that. So that just allows, like we're saying, precision medicine when you actually have a cell counter and you can you kind of formulate your own PRPs to target different things. And so I know like the Regenics guys, like I know they do that up in Colorado and Steve Sampson in California. He's really good with that type of stuff. He uses, he uses mainly PRGF, which is fine, which I'm, a, I'm, a fi I'm fine with that too, because it's a leukocyte poor PRP. It's not painful to inject and it's well studied. And um, again, there's very less chance, there's very low likelihood of any sort of harm with that. Um, and then I think the other thing is looking at their credentials in the sense that uh, like who have they treated, what have they done in terms of schooling and that kind of stuff. Like, you don't want to necessarily go to a naturopath or a chiropractor who's doing this because they thought it'd be fun uh, and just so they want to make some money. Because uh, a lot of people, you know, they're motivated by money, unfortunately. And um, because like we talked about, it's not a really well-regulated space. There are a lot of naturopaths doing it. I just don't see why you would go to a naturopath because they don't have the specialized training that we do, right? We have to go to school for years to do just, just to learn image, like, just to learn ultrasound technique takes, it took me like two years. Like it's, it's a really specialized thing. Right. And so you have to really be proficient and skilled at it. I don't see how a naturopath can just pick it up. Like there are naturopaths doing it all over and they just do it without image guidance. So I think, I think looking at the credentials, making sure they're like, you know, an actual medical doctor uh, and have ideally some sort of specialized training in image guidance and that kind of stuff is really important. Um, so I think those are probably the most important criteria to look at. I I don't I, I don't want to bash naturopaths whatsoever. I, I don't know what uh, what training is required to be a naturopath. Like, is there like a four year training? Does anybody it's know? It's like two years. I yeah, believe. it's just a four year. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I think I think in the U.S. it's like so. Oh, you might be right. It's four years. I think so. It's a two-year curriculum, but they learn a lot more of the integrative, holistic. So they don't go as far in depth as we do. Um, you know, in physiology, pharmacology, they learn kind of very superficial from what I've read up on. Um, they have an entry exam; it's credited, but again, the the depth is not there um, as much as we learn. And then their clinical rotations and stuff are a little bit more like specific uh, than ours. So it's kind of like PA or an NP where. They delve into like a, spe- uh, a special scope early on, whereas we kind of, you know, have the interior general practice and then we start to funnel it down. Hmm. Do they have a residency? I'm not sure. I think you can do a residency. I think you can do like a year or two in a specific like field. I know some natural pathics that do like oncology, like residency for a year. Um, but I don't it's again, I don't think it's as like in depth as, as as what we do. And like, I don't know how much of the billing coding, you know, prescription, because it's state to state is going to be different as well. Uh, I'll say this, man, I, I think uh, I really appreciate your point where I disagree is, you know, I don't know if uh, I think that the degree part is as long as it's legal within the scope of where a country you're living in, like it doesn't bother me as long as the intentions of the person are right and they're actually doing the work and, and they're actually doing it the right way, as I should what I should say. Because I'll tell you, I graduated with a lot of physicians who have no business doing the injections that they're doing. I promise you. Like I've seen their work first. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and they have the credentials, they have the degrees, but God, I I would never refer a patient to them. Um, by the same respect, you know, I, I wonder if somebody Again, I think chiropractic school is for you. If they did become a chiropractor and they got, you know, advanced training, like, like you did, like, you know, scope training, and they did, they went to a couple of, let's say, IOF courses, then did that. If legally, which I admit, I don't know what the legalities are, um, they're allowed to do that kind of stuff. Um, I, I wonder if, if that's as bad, you know, but, but it makes it challenging. And to be fair, the question I asked you, what are your baseline requirements at a superficial level? And, and that's the question you answered. So I, so I appreciate that. Um, to your point about the image guidance, I do want to ask about this follow-up, right? Because I'm passionate about musculoskeletal ultrasound. This what I spent a lot of my residency training and fellowship training doing. Um, I imagine that you have these conversations with your colleagues who are not using image guidance, right? When they're doing these procedures. Um, and I suspect they probably tell you, oh, I know that when I go through the portal in the knee, I'm injecting, Right. I know I'm getting there all the time, right? What's that conversation when you're like with them? Because I, I know the evidence that supports image guidance versus non-image guidance, what it says, but that person's like, no, 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 I'm in there. I know I'm in there. Or maybe even an orthopedic surgeon who actually do orthoscopy yeah. and know. Exactly, yeah. Well, orthopedic surgeons are always like, uh, it's walking on eggshells when you're telling them that they're not doing something right. Because <laughs> they think, you know, <laughs> they're, they're gods in the OR, but when it comes to injections, they're not so good. Uh, that's our specialty, right? Intervention. We're interventionists. Like we're true intervent. Like we do. That's all we do. We play with needles, and that's all we do all day, right? Image guidance, injections. These guys are good at cutting. They're great at drilling, all that stuff. But when it comes to injections, uh, it's its own specialty, and it should be treated as such. So I don't think it makes sense for someone who's not specialized in training in it to dabble into it on the side. I think you need a lot of experience, especially for spine. Like you need a lot of experience and expertise to do that type of stuff. Um, so usually, the way I phrase it, um, like what you said, is basically most like eighty percent of uh, orthopedic surgeons who did unguided injections missed a target. Like there was a study about that. And so for, for the shoulder. And so even experienced orthopedic what, surgeons will miss a target. Was it glenohumeral or like sub, what in the uh, shoulder? It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a tendon for like supraspinatus okay. tendon. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So glenohumeral, I, I would think would be higher, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, lower, I mean, like, lower, like they would probably wouldn't miss it as much, but like tendons like are hard to get into, right? Especially if you're doing like this, the problem is the precision medicine, it hasn't, 
it, it hasn't changed, right? The concept basically was we can inject cortisone and you'll get better because, but the reality is cortisone, I can inject it to, into your butt and it'd probably make your shoulder feel a little bit better because it has a systemic anti-inflammatory effect. And so you didn't have to be that precise. You just kind of had to get it in the general area. Uh, but the orthobiologics, it's all about precision. And like you have to, like when you have small tears that are in the supraspinatus are causing chronic shoulder pain, if you don't get the right target, the patient's not going to get better. And you have to find the right angle and you have to, you have to know how to use a probe and you have to know how to guide it into there. So it's very precise and it's very different from what tr- 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 the traditional model of training was. And so I think the, unfortunately, the medicine field has still not evolved, at least not in Canada. I don't know how it's in the States, but Canada, for the most part, majority of people are doing it without image guidance and they're not even trained in image guidance. Um, and there's they're, they're, the college here is finally starting to regulate it because they've seen how much harm has been done. And, and the Toronto Star here did a huge investigation into all these pain clinics that were doing all these BS injections. So they kind of exposed all the cracks in the system. And so now that they're, they're finally starting to make it a standard that you have to have image guidance and you have to save your pictures and all that stuff, you know, just like when you do, like, I'm sure, you know, spine intervention society guidelines, like SI, like just like that, it should be the same guidelines for us, right? It should be like very precise, high, like, you know, high standard of care type of thing. Yeah. I mean, that warms my heart. It's really funny because over the last two years, uh, 2019 journal ultrasound medicine, I think the first author is Lundstrom. He publishes studies looking at visco supplementation, right? Hyaluronic acid, um, ultrasound guided versus um, blind injections. And what they documented like over a six year period, folks that um, got palpation guided or blind injections were significantly more likely to go on for a knee replacement than folks who had ultrasound guidance, right? Take that for what it is. There was another study published in 2021. I think this one, it's in one of the arthroscopy journals, so AJSM, um, I'll find it and we'll link it. And they um, just compared, you know, um, for knee osteoarthritis, moderate severe knee osteoarthritis, palpation guided versus ultrasound guidance and significantly better effects for ultrasound guided. Uh, and ultimately, you know, I, I, it's it's funny because when I told that to my co-fellow, shout out to him, Ryan Meyer, um, when I tell them uh, his response was like, yeah, he was tongue in cheek, but he's like, yeah, you know, all the surgeons that I've ever worked with are in the top 1%. So they never miss, you know, and he, he was joking about that. But, you know, every time I have this conversation <laughs> um, and then they'll say, oh no, I'm in there because I've done 10,000 and I know I'm going into the subacromia bursa. Uh, but I just, I, I find that to be really, really interesting. I do want to call out my bias though. I, I am a non-surgeon. And as Dr. Malunga said that, um, you know, we have to appreciate our biases. I think that um, I, I'm curious to see if there's orthopedic literature that that shows the, you know, the um, the opposite side is true of if some palpation guided injections can be just as good as ultrasound guidance. I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. But uh, if somebody out there knows of it, please send it our way. I think patients don't, like once they realize would I rather have this procedure done with a camera guiding it or not? Mm. Like, I mean, it, it, from a patient perspective, they're just like, why would I not have, a, why would I not want my practitioner who's injecting something into me to see what they're doing? <laughs> like, it's just, it, 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 to them, it makes a lot more sense. And um, I think, yeah, I think orthopedic surgeons need to get over the fact that, um, that they can just admit they don't have the training and they can refer to someone else to do the injection. Like, I don't, it's not a, it's not an ego thing. Who cares? Like, just get the patient better. That's what it's about. Yeah. Well, the difficult part here in the States is, right? So for the non-surgical folks, they'll tell me it's a time-based issue, right? This comes back to our conversation with Peter Valenzuela is the business of medicine is driving the practice of medicine, right? It's putting on an ultrasound and saving the pictures takes more time. And so it's frustrating for us three here, uh, but this is just the, I don't have an answer to that one. Yeah. And that's the, I mean, that's the systemic issue of the whole medical system. It's just, it's time-based and based off you know, the more you see, the more you make type of thing. And just kind of a nonsense system, but that's another discussion, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
So, Dio, I mean, we touched on orthobiologics in depth here. Um, and I know you're not just like a needle junkie. Uh, you're very well versed in the world of functional integrative, you know, lifestyle medicine and those topics. And as we touch on precision medicine, there's obviously this other leg, right, that we look at labs um, and try to, you know, figure out labs, especially maybe some of those that might be quote unquote strange, right, that are not on your normal panel. You're obviously working with a lot of, you know, top athletes, bodybuilders, um, active members. Are there any specific labs that you're looking at, right? So when you're thinking about PRP, orthobiologics, what are their adjunct kind of treatments, labs are you looking at um, when you look at the holistic uh, viewpoint? Well, I think we can talk about what would be an ideal scenario and what I actually do. <laughs> so <Sure. laughs> in an ideal scenario, ideal world, you, you would, uh, yeah, because in an ideal world, you would actually have them, you know, come in uh, ideally three to six months before injection, you would do a full blood work and you would like kind of look at inflammatory markers, look at every, just like kind of like general panel of everything, make sure they're generally healthy. Like they're not having like, uh, just because you don't, if they have lots of inflammation in their body, it's just, you know, the injections may not necessarily work as well. Um, especially the standard PRP, because you're not standard, you're not necessarily removing all the, and you're not promoting the anti-inflammatory effect like you are with the second generation PRPs. And so, um, so if they're not that healthy, like I would maybe want them to, if, I, if the blood work comes back and they have high cholesterol, they have diabetes and their inflammatory markers are through the roof and that kind of stuff, then I'd be like, you know what, let's hold off on PRP for three months. Let's get you to see this nutritionist work, you know, work on exercise lifestyle, and then we can come back and revisit it. That would be the ideal thing to do. Um, it's, it, but the reality is most patients come to me and they're, you know, they've been in pain for so long. They just want to get treated ASAP um, and they don't care. Uh, and so, so what I do in those in, for those patients, what I check are hormones at least to see if there's something maybe that is impairing their recovery. Because mm. uh, we know that if, you're, um, if your testosterone and your growth hormone levels are suboptimal, it can definitely impair recovery. So the way we check that is free testosterone bioavailable and then IGF-1 and IGF-BP3, which are markers for growth hormone. And so if they have deficiencies in those, that may actually not only increase the risk of injuries, but it could even for some patients, it can even explain why they keep getting injured. And then once you get those levels to an, a good range, they, may, they feel so much better, they recover better, they sleep better, all that stuff. And then it just makes the outcomes much better too. I've had many patients where even like some patients with chronic pain, like you just put them on growth hormone and all their pain goes away because they're, they had like no growth hormone wow. and like they, they just never, no one ever checked it. Tony, Tony wrote a whole book about growth hormone. So that's, that's why I'm well-versed in it too. And he, um, he, he did it for tight, he, like he used to optimize the levels a little bit for people and that's why well, he was controversial as well. But um, the reality is it, it makes a big difference, right? Like for, we're just, we're not necessarily talking about professional athletes because obviously there's, um, you know, with performance enhancing and stuff, it might cause an issue, but you, just for regular folks, you, it's something, if you optimize, it can make a big difference. Yeah. I was going to ask in the population of the bodybuilders, is there anything that you get worried about that they might be taking that would get in the way of doing any type of orthobiologic procedure, any type of supplements or steroids? Uh, yeah, as anti yeah anti estrogens um, specifically because they like um, like there's Novodex and there's um, Anestrozole and like a bunch of they're actually serms which are used mm. uh, in breast cancer. But the yeah. reason they use them is because they don't want their estrogen to build up in their system when they're on a cycle. And the problem is what happens with those anti estrogens actually increase your risk of tendon ruptures and they can affect uh, tendon healing as well. Uh, so there's been like uh, in vitro studies on that type of stuff. So that's that's the type of thing I would I usually call, like. I'm like, you know, and that's, and that's actually a lot of times where you see a lot of tears and a lot of ruptures is close to a show for bodybuilders because they're getting shredded and they're taking these high doses steroids, but they're also taking high doses anti-estrogen and they're, and they're in a calorie deficit. So their body's just like primed to be injured. Gotcha. Very cool. Go for it all. So wait, so this is maybe a common misconception. So it's actually the aromatase inhibitors that make it more susceptible to tendon ruptures, not the testosterone. 
Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, Hey, I know you're also very interested in fitness and weightlifting as we talked about, right? Tell us about why muscle is so important for longevity and that conversation that you have with your patients. Yeah. I, I say like muscle is like the body armor, like real body armor. Yeah. <laughs> not just, uh, it, it protects you from so many, it protects you not, it protects you from so many diseases because of what's called myokines. We talked about cytokines earlier, but myokines are like the cellular signals that go throughout your body from the muscle and they actually reduce inflammation and they help protect you from, we know from heart disease, cancer, diabetes. And similarly, if you have too much fat, they release something called adipokines. And those adipokines are pro-inflammatory cytokines that, you know, lead to, especially visceral adiposity, which is like the, vis- the fat around your organs. That's very, and that's very pro-inflammatory and increases risk of so many different diseases. So yes, muscle looks nice, but uh, it's not just about aesthetics. It's actually pretty much, it's, it's an organ of longevity, right? It's essentially what you need to live a good, long, functional, healthy life. And there's no compromise, there's no way around it anymore. Like you have to just say, suck it up and you have to learn to put on muscle. Uh, whether you want to do that through gym or, you know, through resistance, like there's, I mean, swimming, cycling, or resistance training. The problem is you need a periodized training program. And like the reality is most people don't know how to do that. And most people just kind of show up and just do some 1980s bodybuilding workout and just get in and get out. And I, I've seen, I had this intensivist who was like, he was like the smartest intensivist I ever met in my life. And he was like doing this like 1980s like routine. And I was like, this is so <laughs> odd. Like why are these intelligent doctors training like, like 1980s bodybuilders like this doesn't make it but it's just it's just they penetrated the mass market right with yeah. their supplements and with their uh influence and everything and so it's a, 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 a there's so much evidence now with actual strength science but it's it's just run by bodybuilders like i love bodybuilders i work with them all the time i treat them all the time <laughs> but and i'm part of hd muscle like i work with them but at the same time what they preach is not based on evidence it's bro science right it's right. all it's, it's just and 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 like periodized training there's a certain way to do it um, which is science-based and um, that can lead to so much faster strength gains and putting on muscle. It's not that hard if you know how to do it properly. Uh, but the reality is most people don't. And, uh, and I think, I think that, I think that's why I'm, I'm working with a startup company called Exalt and we're just that we're trying to make um, fitness accessible to the average person because it's just, we need a, we're using a scalable technology to do that. And so that's, I think that's really what, what the future needs because everyone needs a coach. I think it's just too hard. Otherwise, Take us through uh, Exalt. What's the what's the technology? What's what's your goal with that? Um, so there's two components to it. One is a health dashboard to track data over time, okay, um, and then apply machine learning to apply machine learning to that to better help predict health outcomes eventually. Uh, and then the other is there's mobility assessment, which again we're using machine learning to assess people's movement patterns. Uh, so there's something called the functional movement screen (FMS), which is like. Mm-hmm kind of like the standard for movement screen, but it's, it's not that well. I mean, it's like 50% accurate, but there's nothing great. There's nothing great to predict injury risk, right? That's reality. And so what we want to do is we, we want to use machine learning and our data to assess people's movement. And hopefully over time, as we get lots of data, we can, over years, we can hopefully start to predict injury risk better. But the movement assessment is basically a camera AI technology that can help at least a trainer to assess movement um, because it's so subjective otherwise. Yeah, cool. Very cool, man. And so the idea is that we're just... We're doing it at the, the biggest thing is we're doing it at the fraction of the cost. If you're wondering gotcha. what's so different about it, is it's 15 minute sessions, so it's short sessions, but it's it's it allows people to get a trainer and a coach for one thousand dollars a year, versus if you're paying a a, co- a trainer, you have to pay three four thousand dollars for like three months, right? And that's yeah. who who can afford that? If the average income in the U.S. 
is like 35,000 USD, right? Single. And so you know what I mean? So like, it's not, it doesn't make sense to, the pricing makes no sense. It's just for rich people. Exactly, man. Especially if we're trying to make systemic change, right? I mean, we know chronic disease and obesity and all that is through the roof here um, in the US and globally, honestly. Yeah. Um, cool, man. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about longevity, right? Because I've been listening to David Sinclair and I wanted to get your take on this, right? Like, how do you balance out kind of, well, first of all, the take that David Sinclair has, right, is limited. He's now like anti-protein, limiting kind of the protein uh, side of things. So we have muscle on one side that kind of, right, helps with longevity. But then you have this other side with like caloric restriction and fasting. What is your end goal here when you look at kind of your health and fitness um, and longevity? Kind of what's your take on what you want to do? I know it's a little. Yeah, I mean, they question. always talk about the M. No, I know they always talk about the mTOR pathway, right. and how you know it might increase. Good. I think I think the reality is you have to like this is where science, basic scientists like David Sinclair and maybe clinicians like us can help to elucidate some of the discrepancies. And I think the reality is you have to look at function, you have to look at quality of life, and you have to look at functional impairment. Yeah. The reality is if you don't have sufficient muscle and protein, you're going to lose that as you age, mm-hmm. and you're going to lose it really fast. And, and, and it's, there's been, there's been large meta analysis. Like, um, there's one done at Tufts university looking at grip strength as a predictor of mortality. So like people who, and that's just grip strength. So imagine if you actually did a real assessment, like measuring someone's leg strength, like leg press or squats or something functional dynamic, like imagine how much you could actually gauge in terms of like, like longevity there. So muscle, muscle is the ultimate longevity tool. Um, and I'd rather have muscle and look good than be a skinny guy and live longer, I guess. Like, I don't, yeah. like, I don't know, like to me, it's more important to be, um, like, uh, like I want to look good and I want to feel good like that. And muscle allows you to do that. So it, it, whatever, whatever, um, basic science stuff that they're talking about, or like some of the data on, I mean, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe I would live a few years longer if I didn't eat as much, or if I was a calorie restriction and I was fasting every day, maybe, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like there's not enough to say that. And there, on a counterpoint to that, like there hasn't been enough data on muscle, right? And that's where there's a lot of research heading that way now because people are starting to realize, oh, wait, they're like, oh, muscle is not just some stupid thing to look good. It actually is a organ, complex organ system that's right. sending all these cellular signals. So now we realize that. So it's like, that's why they're finally studying it. So there's so much research in this field. So I think, I think I'm, I can almost guarantee you in like 10 years, we'll be like, oh, maybe we were wrong about this whole calorie restriction thing. Mm-hmm. Muscle is actually the most important. Um, so I, like, I can almost guarantee you that it just makes sense from a functional perspective too. Like what, like think about how many people like lose their quality of life mm-hmm. because they just didn't have enough muscle, right. Or they didn't move enough. It's just, it's, and think about how, how many injuries we treat because, um, you know, there, it's, it's a double edged sword, right. If you train too much or if you train too little, it can cause issues. So you got to right. find that sweet spot. And if you do that, if you do that, that's how you age, age gracefully. No, absolutely. I agree with you. Go ahead. I'll- no, so Darsh, I haven't listened to exactly what you're talking about, but but I think the, the point of clarification. I mean, I don't, are they saying that too much muscle is going to be detrimental to longevity, or is it that the because caloric you could have caloric restriction for a long time? I mean, that's the holy grail, right? If you, I don't know how, how easy it's going to be to put on muscle when you're in caloric restriction or in a deficit phase, but. Um, like, what are they saying exactly? So I think more, more from the growth hormone perspective uh, is what he's kind of looking at, right? And he's saying if you're going to be calorically restricted, right? So I'm looking at the perspective of if somebody wants to put on a lot of muscle, likely they're not intermittent fasting, right? You're probably going to be more sometimes at a caloric surplus, or you're going to be doing more things that are anti-mTOR pathway, doing what David Sinclair is kind of thinking about. Um, and so mm-hmm. for him, you know, balancing out, working out with doing this caloric restriction, now becoming a vegetarian, um, you know, I think 
sometimes it's like a tug of war balance, right? As, as you kind of mentioned. Um, so for me, I think, like, like you said, all, I think the mechanistic pathways sound great, but a deal, like you said, what it might add a year or two, like we're not even sure how much, right? So a lot of it sounds great to the ear. Yeah. And, and the long big time. irony, the irony is, the irony is that he's looking at one pathway there's there's seven cellular signaling pathways of aging sure um i can't remember all seven of them but there's there's like protein turnover yeah. telomere length mitochondrial dysfunction insulin resistance and like infl- uh, so there's there's all these paths there's seven there, there's seven that have been well identified in the literature and so he's looking at like like i got like maybe telomere or something but but the reality is exercise is the only tool that can activate all seven cellular pathways and have beneficial effects on them that's why there, there's something called exercise memetics or drugs that are mm-hmm. trying to mimic the exercise effect. But it's, I can almost guarantee you they'll never find that because it, it's, it's too complicated. And it, there's just too many pathways that are getting activated by exercise and that have too many beneficial effects. Um, so you, you, you got to learn to like, exercise properly. Not just exercise has become such a catch-all term that mm-hmm. I, just, I just almost dislike telling people to exercise because it doesn't mean anything. Like you have to actually... Um, you have to actually like specify, you know, what kind of exercise, how to move, like what to move and that kind of stuff. So there's so much, there's so much more to it. Exactly. Like, so Peter Atia kind of breaks down into four categories of movement, right? So stability, strength, and all you can correct yeah. here, but I think it's anaerobic and then aerobic exercise. Right. And so he's kind of working on all four of those pillars. Right. And I think when people think about weightlifting or fitness, they might just be thinking of that one route, but you know, how do we diversify? And I think that's the key when, when you talk about functionality, I mean, Hey, we're all getting older, um, healthcare is getting better, right? Um, so we're, we're we're living longer, we're aging, but at the same time, we need to become functional to play with our great grandkids or you know further on. Um, so I totally agree with your perspective on that. Yeah. Well, guys, um, Adil, I know we've taken more of your time uh, than we actually requested, so uh, I do apologize for that. Oh, but that uh, <laughs> yeah. at the same time, I, I actually have like another hundred question darsh just asked me if i had anything else i was like yes i have so much more uh, but uh, maybe we'll save it for a part two uh hopefully someday um i a couple of questions uh, just to, to round it up is you know where can our listeners find you um if they want to get a hold of you um what's the best way to connect with you man yeah i'm pretty active on instagram so at dr.akon a-k-h-a-n um don't dm me though email if you want to contact me because <laughs> my email is on there but people never listen i get way i just can't yeah but it is what it is <laughs> Do you, uh, you said on some other, that there was somebody who responds to 130 emails a day and that's your goal. Is that true? That sounds like a nightmare to me. That doesn't sound. That, yeah. That was actually an orthopedic, uh, orthopedic surgeon, uh, Brian Cole out of Chicago. Yeah. I, noticed, he, I listened to him on a podcast and he, he, uh, he, he says he gets about hundred emails a day and 130 and he responds to all of them. Wow. So I was like, if he can do that, I can do, I'll respond to all my emails, but DMS are just like, there's just so many. And there's just also like some of them are just like ads and nonsense. So I just, I just Perfect, can't. Yeah go through all them, you know? Yeah. It sounds like a pretty good filter right there. So <laughs> people don't have to, you know, the barrier of getting to a yeah. computer and sending an email is just too much nowadays. Um, last and yes. perhaps a, the most important question, it's kind of the mission of the show, man. It says, how do we, how do we add the health back in healthcare? We connect with other people more. Connection is the key that we're missing. It's called the Rosetta effect. And uh, it was studied in the Italian population where they, even though they ate like crap, they smoked and all this, that they still lived longer because they had connection. So I think that's the biggest thing is, uh, and that's what I'm trying to do with my social media and all that stuff too, is just, yeah, just reach more people and help. Absolutely. Well, you're crushing it. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks. 
Thanks so much for hanging around through this episode. Dr. Adil Khan is an awesome resource and he's got a lot of cool things coming up and he has an awesome vision when it comes to orthobiologics and sports medicine and weightlifting. And so if you're interested in what he's doing and you want to follow his journey, I highly recommend following his Instagram. He posts a lot of great content and it's not only just about sports medicine. He posts a lot about just general health and fitness and how we can do our best every single day to become the best versions of ourselves. Now, if you want another perspective when it comes to PRP, regenerative medicine, orthobiologics, and sports medicine, you can check out episode 14 of this podcast with Dr. Gerald Malenga, who is one of the fathers of orthobiologics in the U.S. Now, if you're enjoying this episode and you think somebody else would enjoy it as well, please share it with them. Please take the time to subscribe and also rate and review this podcast if you feel like you're getting value out of it. And as always, everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you see the guidance of your personal physician regarding any specific health-related issues. We'll see you next week with the lessons learned.